Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is William Brett Bell. He is the director of a number of horror films, including Stay Alive, The Boy and the Devil Inside. His latest film, Orphan First Kill, is hitting theaters, VOD, and Paramount Plus on August 19th. Welcome to the show, Brent! Hey! Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. I, I cannot wait to dig into both your movie and also the movie you brought with you because boy, but let's take it back to the start. How did you get introduced to horror? Well, I would say probably that movie. Okay. Mm. Definitely. Because I, I, um, I saw a movie once <laughs> uh, that we'll talk about later, but uh, you know, it played on like late night TV. And if you watch it, 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 it has almost a, a TV movie quality to it, yeah. but at the same time, I think it's the, I think it's the score. And I just, you know, I was probably a little younger than the kids in the movie. You know, it's about two nine-year-old twins, but I was probably six, seven. And, um, and, you know, just my parents weren't paying attention to what I did. And I was just up watching movies and, uh, and it's just a movie that scarred me for life. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I've, all these years later and all the movies I've made and the certain the movies I've developed and stuff, it's only been a c- last few years that I've really been like, Oh wow. Like, uh, that movie's really dictated so much of what I've done as, um, a filmmaker. And, uh, but even last year, yeah, my, you know, my sister knows this cause she was probably the one that made me watch it. And, um, I know we're jumping ahead, but we're not, but, uh, and, you know, she got me, like, I got a new copy of the book for Christmas this year. And, oh, wow. um, 
And, you know, it's just one of those things. Is your sister older than you? Yeah, she's like four and a half years older than me. Okay. So she is that age where she completely hated me as a kid and (laughs) would try to drown me. And and so as a kid, it was that and Trilogy of Terror, which was also on television. Yeah. Um, It was the, the doll segment. And so for my whole life as a child until maybe, I mean, I still have very vivid memories of it, but until I was probably uh, 11, like I, after watching um, Trilogy of Terror, the Zulu doll segment on ABC, I couldn't sit at a, um, at a couch without thinking there was a witch underneath the couch with that doll. And if I put my legs down, they would cut my feet off, like cut my ankle at the ankles. Holy and shit. I still have just a vivid memory of like that just was a superstition I had and I would keep my legs up for years, for like three or four years, you know. Holy oh cow. So those are two movies that yeah. definitely probably were introduced to me like in that age range on television. Did that like, from my sister. Did that make you like horror movies or did that make you want to avoid them like the plague? I loved it. I mean, I was scared by it. Like when I was a kid, um, you know, Part of divorce, that kind of stuff. So kind of lonely. And, um, but in my bedroom, I thought every night that, that through the window, my room would become like a flea market and this witch would come in and I would hide under my bed and that she would come around. And if she saw me move, she'd buy me and like take me. Oh. And like every night I thought like this witch would visit my room and go around and, um, Sounds really creepy. So while I was scared of horror stuff, um, The Shining, I remember very early, seeing that woman in the bathtub oh. was something that freaked me out. And um, and The Exorcist, seeing the flashes, I remember that really young, of the, you know, like the subliminal advertising they did yeah. in that sort of, or subliminal messaging. But, but no, I, I was never scared of it in a way that um, made me not be excited about it and want to be a part of telling those stories. So from an early age, did, did you, did you know that you wanted to do something creative? Um, I always did creative things, but I don't think I ever knew, um, that it would become like my career. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, like I got kicked out of high school because I would, for the last two years, I never went to school. I just made movies. Oh wow. And, but I certainly never thought like, but then I'm going to go off and make movies. (laughs) I just kind of, only like making movies. So I just did that. Okay. Um, and then at some one point I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go try to make movies. Hell yeah. That's amazing. So what, what were some of your favorite, uh, horror movies as a kid growing up? I mean, I mean, those things I mentioned, Mm -hmm. but, um, Halloween's definitely my favorite and, um, same thing, you know, those were really early Halloween, Friday, 13, things like that. But, but Halloween in particular, just because, you know, that score, oh. which it's impossible to to use that score as temp in a movie when you're editing it. But I mean, if you do try to do that, it's got so many themes and so many different melodies that are also scary. Like it's like seven of them that are as scary as Tubular Bells from The Exorcist, you know. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then you know you watch that movie, which was about. I was like the age of the little kids when I saw that film, mm. but then my sister was like the age of, you know, uh, Carrie and all those guys. Mm. And, um, and so that was kind of my life was being around babysitters 
Wow. And then, you know, you watch that movie. I'm more of a fan, certainly, of like, for me, the first one. And then they just became kind of, they become more and more caricatures of themselves a bit. Right. And that happens. But, uh, you know, I when I talk to people about it, it's just much more of a Hitchcockian movie. And uh, where, you know, at the end of the day, there's a couple people killed, but really it's only those few people at the end. It's a small body count for, for a movie that yeah. would go on to, or a series that would go on to kill hundreds of people it's it has relatively yeah. a small body count in the original but there's so yeah. much tension tension i mean it's yeah it's you know the shape and that town and um the anticipation mm-hmm. yeah i just i love it um and you know when a stranger calls um such a over, over so, movie. Minutes, so great i mean the first 15 minutes and the last five are just and they tried to make the remake and it have you seen the work. sequel when a stranger calls back um, I know of it. I don't okay. know that I, I'm sure I did kind of watch it. It's actually kind of fun. It has like, it has like a killer that's hiding against a wall at a, at a, towards the end. And it's just such a perfect moment. It, it doesn't quite hit the, the intensity of that first, uh, that first one, but it's, um, it's actually quite a, a fun sequel. Well, I mean, it's one of those, the original is one of those movies that, you know, like the movie, a lot of people don't even know the movie. I mean, the movie was this kind of, I mean, it wasn't even about her, you know, mm-hmm. it became about this cop trying to find this killer. But, um, but those first 15 minutes and that, you know, the calls coming from in the house, so simple, but it's just one of those things that you can't forget. Yeah. And, um, those are a couple of the, my favorites for sure. Hell and yeah. then the recent ones are, you know, it's very different. I mean, Rosemary's baby, um, and now today things, you know, get out heredit there's just so much good so stuff. Much. Get out hereditary, um the witch. I mean, you know, I just Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, like, so what continues to draw you to horror and continues to draw you to want to make horror movies as an adult? I mean, probably a couple things. I mean, it's an extremely creative um uh tableau for making films, you know? And um partly because we can make them slightly outside the system and, mm-hmm. and, and have a little more freedom. Uh, and I think a lot of people who aren't that as into horror think of horror and they have a very knee-jerk reaction yeah. to whatever their perception of horror yeah. is, which is usually more slasher type gory. They, they think they don't like it when of course they've probably watched a lot of horror and didn't even know yep. it and really loved it. Exactly. And um, and it's such a spectrum. So like the film I just did in London is totally different, you know, than like Orphan First Kill. I mean, they couldn't be more different. And so it's just a, such a wide spectrum of whatever kind of stories you want to tell. And then, you know, Stephen King says, you, you know, we make horrors to help us deal with the real ones. And yeah. I think that's really true. So you can kind of tell a very personal or, or, or a story that has a lot of social commentary, if you want, um, in horror. And then, Anytime I'm finishing a movie or whatever, and then I'm thinking of another one and I'm talking to people about other projects, and then it's it's always like, oh, here's this science fiction project and it's you know, a much bigger movie and I'm kind of knee deep in. And then you know, it's like right now, Orphan First Kill is coming out. And the excitement and the... And it doesn't even matter to me. It's like, it could be that they all hate it or they love it. It's just such a passion that you're not going to get if you do a rom-com right. or even a science fiction movie. You're, you're just, it's cool and it'll be great. And, and it'll, you know, fun to make and people will love it. Hopefully whatever your project is, 
but the horror world and the fandom and the excitement that gets built up around it, it's just everything. And I'm just like, ah, you know, like testing a horror film and just sitting back and listening to the audience gasp or giggle or stay quiet or scream. I I have to say that I cackled in Orphan First Kill at a specific moment. I was like, yes. And I just from, okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but like that, speaking of that kind of visceral reaction, uh, I had that reaction. And then I found out some of my friends that are writers had seen the movie and we were, we were DMing back and forth and like, oh my gosh, when X happened, I was like, yes, yes, this moment. And uh, it just, I love that. I love that feeling that horror can give. What does that mean? Can you give me a hint of what the cackle moment was? Oh, uh, I mean, we'll edit this out. Edit this out. (laughs) I yelled. My fiance was like, what is going on? I'm like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So can you you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, about what what Orphan Orphan First Kill is? Well, it's a prequel to Orphan Mm -hmm. that's um, set. 2007 a couple years before that film and we meet esther um you know we're in on her secret now we know that she's an adult we meet her at an asylum um where she's a patient and she escapes and uses her condition which you know makes her kind of look childlike and young and small to pose as the missing daughter of a very wealthy family in the states and that gets her out of the Eastern Bloc into America. Um, and then she gets kind of caught up with this family. And But it's, you know, it's it becomes complicated. It does get complicated, complicated. yes. <laughs> what what drew you to this to this project, I have to ask? Um I mean I was I've known I've known a lot of the producers of Dark Castle forever. Which Silver by Pictures. the way, sorry, side note, it was so cool to see that logo on the screen yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's them. They're relaunching, you know, and this is kind of their big first thing. They've done a couple smaller things Mm -hmm. and, um, or, you know, they did a a movie and then they did a, uh, what was the name of the little funny TV quip, quip, quibble? Oh, quibby. Oh, quibby. 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 Yeah. They did a quibby series, which could have been great if that worked, but it didn't. Yeah. But, um, and so we were talking about, and then also uh, E1 and all those guys. I, I love all those people and I've worked with them before. And so it's a lot of people I really like. And, and it's important to for me to work with people I like. And then working with someone like, like Dark Castle, you know, people who understand the genre space makes making a genre movie, no matter what the tone mm-hmm. of it is, so much more successful, you know, creatively. Yeah. And, um, and then they just, yeah, they just, they called me and said, Hey, you know, we have a script, you know, do you want to read this? And, um, and it's, it's a prequel to Orphan. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I'll read it. I mean, like, definitely. I was like, I'll tell you right now, I'm not probably going to want to make the movie because there's no way you're going to have a twist <laughs> uh-huh. that lives up to the first. And I was like, and I don't know who you could ever fill the shoes of Isabel Firm. But I was like, but as a fan, I'll definitely read it. Like, this will be great. And they're like, well, we don't want to tell you too much, but we think you'll like it. And, and there is a twist, but we're not going to say anything. And uh, and I read it that day and um, even kind of looking for the twist, you know, totally it surprised me. Mm. And it was very, you know, it, it was very much as it is sort of in, in, the, in the movie. And um, 
And I immediately, I was even talking with Alex Mace at Dark Castle and we were t- joking about, we still have the messages we sent to each other. And it was like, holy shit, like you guys killed this. I can't believe it. Like let's, you know, and so I was in there next, that following week, you know, meeting with them and, and trying to figure out how to make the movie. Um, and then also trying to figure out like, okay, what are we going to do about Esther? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which could be the, the next movie. What are we going to do about, <laughs> <laughs> about Esther? A prequel to a the good... prequel to Orphan. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was very, it took me off guard. I wasn't planning on doing, because I was talking to them actually about Lord of Misrule, which I said is totally different tonally. And so this was a totally different tone. And I, I, but it was such a good script that it was just like, oh shit. Um, we have to, you know, pursue this to the fullest extent here and see what we can do. Hell yeah. Did, um, and turn into a movie. were you ever like, I mean, obviously when you first read it, you were like, there's no way you could beat it. But in making this movie, were you ever worried about how people were going to react or like filling the shoes of this movie that I feel like had such an impact when it was released? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we were in a bit of a vacuum at first, um, until we announced it, mm-hmm. you know, so for a few months we were just kind of doing drafts of the script and um and then when we announced it a few things i mean i i've never in all the movies i've made and being around it um i've never felt the wave of fans and intensity that i did where people were i mean it's like death threats you know like wow. you cannot make orphan? this movie without <laughs> yeah yeah about any, well, about like, any movie but movie. orphan well, they're like, you can't make this movie without Isabel Furman. Like that's, or she is Esther. You can never do this movie without her. You know, don't make this movie. Cause, you know, assuming we were going to cast a little girl, okay. which we did, we were doing it, we were casting in parallels. We were developing, doing the movie with Isabel. But, um, but then Isabel also, uh, reached out to me that day. Um, and was just like, Oh, I'm so excited you're doing it. Um, and I was doing a screening that night. So I was like, why don't you come to the screening? And uh, I'd never met her in person. And she showed up and it was like, oh, wow. Like you look the same almost, you know, compared to most people. Like she yeah. didn't change much. Yeah. She just kind of was 15, 20% scaled <laughs> yeah. up. And, um, but then she made it really clear. Like she just wanted me to know that she wanted like she this was her character mm. and if there was any way to do it she wanted to play esther or esther again and um and so it was like seeing her and what she looked like coupled with with her passion for it which i would never do the movie without her completely wanting to do it um and and then this wave of passion from the fans you know that monday Cause we had dinner the next night, went through the whole script. And then that Monday, I think, or something, um, I had a meeting with all the producers and said, we gotta, cause they were right at that point. You just were looking at her to be an, a cameo. Oh, um, oh, probably is the character in the beginning, the doctor who gets yeah. killed. Okay. And, um, and, but you know, I think everybody really was excited. They wanted to do it. They loved the idea, but they just weren't convinced we could do it. So then it took a year of, so to answer your question, I was very worried about that and um, for the whole process. But once once she came on board, 
you know, people are going to say what they're going to say, but I'm like, just, you know, see the movie. And if like, and if you're really a fan of hers, like passionately, you should really yeah. appreciate the movie. Whether you oh, love it or absolutely. just don't love it. It's like a love letter to her. I was, I was very surprised at, at how much I loved it because I was in the camp of like, how are you going to make a prequel to a movie in which everyone knows the twist, right? And yeah. I am also not a huge fan of prequels because I feel like, yeah. It's it's always backstory that is getting, but this is a completely interesting story. It's not a remake of the first one, which is another another fear I had originally. I was like, is it just going to be like a rehash of the first one? And it's not. It surprised the absolute fuck out of me in such a <laughs> in such a great way. I was, uh, I'm watching it again this week, and I'm so excited <laughs> to watch it without having to have my notepad out and taking notes. <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. I'm excited for people to see it. Yeah. It's just, I mean, people are seeing it. Yeah. It's, it's really, I think, I think we've talked about this before in the podcast because we talked, we had an episode about Orphan, actually. We did. And I love Orphan. I saw it in theaters when it first came out. I think it's like a camp. It's incredibly campy. And I was so impressed with how much you captured that camp sensibility of Orphan. Mm -hmm. I was so happy because I was like, you gotta get campy. And it's just, oh, it's, and it's really quite impressive how you're able to capture that. Like, Again, it's really cool just seeing the the camp of Orphan again because it's so unique and weird and fun, and it's just mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's just a good time. <laughs> you know, and I think it, part of the reason the camp of it is unique is because like the first film had such a stellar cast that wasn't typical of the genre mm-hmm. space necessarily, and um, and this one kind of, you know I think does too. And um, Julia Stiles. There she is. Yeah, it's like she she can try to be as campy as she possibly can be, but she always has this air of believability no uh matter what. Always grounded. Yeah. So it's like a different actress would have made it really feel campy. Like the movie would have really. But um, with her, you know, she set the tone and um, it doesn't matter how over the top or um, absurd a situation is in a story. It's like. Even when she's trying to play to the fun of it, she's always going to, yeah. you know, make it feel Perfect believable. Casting. Perfect casting. Perfect yeah. casting. Really so was. good really to was. see her in it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, Brent, we've talked about your relationship to horror. We've talked a little bit about the movie you brought today. But what? let's formally introduce the film that we are discussing <laughs> today. Brent, what is it? The movie we're discussing today um, is called The Other from 1972. So, um, for many of you who might not be familiar with this, let me read a quick synopsis. Um, in the other, a series of gruesome accidents plague a small American farming community in the summer of 1935, encircling two identical twin brothers and their family. Yeah, so you kind of set the scene a little bit, but can you go a little bit more in depth? How old were you when you saw this? How did you see this? It sounded like your sister got, got you to see it. What were your thoughts and what about this movie terrified you so i probably saw it when i was around six or seven because it was probably after my parents divorced and then um and i saw it at my grandmother's house like on a fold-out couch bed or whatever wow. um like just it, it was late night television mm-hmm. you know and um it was playing on tv and my sister around that time when she would have to babysit me she totally just would watch scary movies and um and put me in that position as a and, good older uh, sibling should it is and and even my mother 
when she got me every other weekend, she would take me to horror films. And even today she's like, no, I never would have done that. I was like, <laughs> how did I see these movies? You know, I saw them with you. And, um, but I remember watching actually the other, like my father came in the first time I watched it. I remember the light of the TV and the weird fold out couch. Cause we were at my grandmother's, I think I said that. And, um, but it's such a creepy movie that especially, you know, in a time when you didn't have as many distractions that at midnight for like a seven-year-old who shouldn't be up watching this spooky wow. movie that has such a tone to it. And then it's about, you know, two kind of nine-year-old, I think, twin brothers who, um, you know, they look like Danny from The Shining sort of. Yeah. And I kind of look like that at the time. And <laughs> it totally did. And, um, and you know, everything from, even the movie I just did, everything from when, when, when Holland would run around and you would hear his weird metal tin thing in his pocket, mm. like shaking, and you'd hear this stuff. And in the movie I just did, I, I had the girl and she had this thing. And when she was running up steps, you just hear that same sound. It didn't have as much of an impact on the story as this did, because what was in that container, you know, were horrible Boy. things. Or, yeah. And, um, and then, you know, you just watch that movie, the, the visuals of everything from the circus to, I mean, it was a beautifully shot movie. Um, you know, to, you know, him having, what would they call it? The great gift or the great. Oh, the great game. The great game yeah, the that great they would game, play. Mm -hmm. Which was crazy. That was like a crazy twist to that movie that the kid, you know, could see the world through the eyes of a bird. Um, but that wasn't anything that really drew me to it necessarily. Um, to me, it was like very creepy because it felt very real that these kids were doing these bad things. When the cousin jumped off the um, barn into oh. the haystack with mm -hmm. the pitchfork, this is something that I'll never forget. And I'll never forget the way that they introduced it. They just started cutting, hard cutting to like a pitchfork. And then five minutes later, you saw this obnoxious kid. I'm the king of the mountain. And then, you know, so it's like, I'll never forget Oof. that weird shot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then the twist, how that happens and, and the way the aunt is screaming at him and showing him the tombstone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get chills every single time. I He's think thrown her. on top of it. He's like <laughs> draped over top of it. And she's like, look at it. I'm like, good God. Yeah. This kid is nine years yeah. old. I know. And, and, but you know, he's evil, he's I think. Right. I mean, he pushed Holland down that well, I think, or, or not Holland. Yeah. Holland. yeah. And, um, and so I don't know. That, that's probably the first time I'd ever seen a twist. Mm. Um, and still it's at the time, especially like as good as anything. And just still just creepy to me, like just the realization and then just the emotion of this woman realizing like, Oh, my sweet boy is evil, actually. Yeah. And, you know, going to the, to the casket, cutting off his father's <sighs> finger for, for a ring. That's something that's just, I'll never forget. And, uh, and the way his mother looked at him. And then, of course, what happens at the end. But then I use, I pitch that final moment, you know, where it's like the auntie is, you know, sacrificed herself. Self-immolating. <laughs> and then you see the, you know, the broken um, lock and we come across and there he is up in the window. 
and that great freeze frame. So I've pitched that moment so many times because, you know, you're kind of going, what does that mean? He broke the lock or is it supernatural now? Right. Like, what's going on? Did, you know, did Holland get him out of there? Like, it's just so many things. The circus or the, I guess it was a circus, right? Kind of a freak yeah. show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The kind of carnival type. I yeah. mean, it's just the visuals of that. Like, there's just so many things about it. Um, I have to, I have to ask, since you were so young when you saw this, did, did the, the kid falling down the well, did the baby in the wine casket at the end, like, did these like leave images in your brain? Because it's oh, haunting yeah. as a 41-year-old watching it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, I just – I still um, – you know, him him reading the book about the evil dwarves that switched the baby. Oh, the changelings. Yeah. Yes. I um, – yeah, that movie, everything about that definitely is indelibly stuck in my mind to where it's like anytime I'm in a situation with a story and trying to do something – creepy and scary that appeals to me i find myself just like those are the it's wow. almost like memories i have more memories of that movie as a child than i do of my childhood in that time period you wow know? wow holy shit but i mean this is a movie that would le- have such an effect on you though because i mean like i was texting terry after watching it and saying i need to take a shower like as as an adult it was so upsetting and like it's interesting because it is a, it is a slower burn. I mean, at the beginning, you kind of have oh, yeah. this like building up of terrible cursed accidents, like such a cursed family movie vibe of like, oh, cool. Yeah. So everyone's just dying everywhere, like dropping like flies on this farm. There's this kid running around in little shorts and socks and just like his brother, his brother somehow like stays in a shed. <laughs> I was like, Terry, is the brother dead or is he just a weird gremlin who like lives in the barn? Like, I'm not quite <laughs> sure where this is going. Cause I was like, but it's so interesting. Cause it's like, I'm trying to predict the twist here because, but then I'm thinking this is one of the first movies I think that had, that probably had such a wild twist. Like, well, I think so. Yeah. Watching it in 2022, you're like, oh, yeah, I know this. But like when you saw it when you were younger and when it first came out, people were like, I have no fucking what? Like, I'm not used to the character right. being dead this whole like it's a small, especially a boy, right. a small child being evil and killing babies. I mean, like, it, there's just something so jarring about and especially because this is the director of To Kill a Mockingbird, which... Um. When I was looking up this movie, I was like, are you kidding me? Because To Kill a Mockingbird in my family, like, my family's obsessed with To Kill a Mockingbird, like any good white suburban middle class family. We love To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) And my family loves it. My mom loves it. And it's so fascinating to go from, like, that to, and I haven't seen any of this this director's other movies, Robert Mulligan, correct? Is that his name? Mulligan? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But, again, he sets up that set kind of to kill a mockingbird tone at the beginning is almost idyllic looking yeah, form. Yeah. Like it's just a young kid on the farm, just, you know, living his life. He's, his dad has died. His mom is depressed is like in billowy, billowy robes and adults are yelling at him and all this stuff. And it has that kind of like idyllic small town kid movie air to it. And I was like, what is going to happen here? And it just takes an absolute nosedive into hell on earth. Yeah. It's, it always felt, by the way, like it was in a European part of the world to me. Um, and maybe because it's it's set, you know, kind of around the Great Depression in America that it was a different time. But I always, I think, growing up, thought it was like in Norway or something. Well, like I mean, also Uta has like, you know, a very thick, like she's going with that kind of German, Russian, Germanic, yeah. like, like accent. So I, I can understand that for sure. Well, 
the family seems so close, too. Yeah, there's so much family there. Like, I was trying to figure out who was who. I think I still had some problems. Like, who is... Who is whose sibling? Who is whose sister? Who is whose grandma? Because it's that big house. And I feel like there's a couple, there's like the big family all living in this house and they all kind of are meshed together. But then there's the older neighbor woman, right? Who dies. And yeah. then there's the, the help. Is, is he like the, the farmhand? The Italian yeah, guy? Yeah. Is that, okay. Cause everyone is like kind of all smashed together that they all run together in your head a little bit. And maybe that's just me, but it did kind of feel like it's family members. But that also kind of to me reminds me of when you're a kid and all these people kind of run together in your head. Like your family somehow. I don't even, but I don't know. It's, it's that's one thing that, um, I've, I've watched the movie over the years over and over. And when you talk about it that way of trying to kind of like who's connected to who, it's like maybe because I saw it when I was young, I just kind of, it's like a haze yeah. to a lot of people mm-hmm. in that movie. And, um, and I don't, I've never really overthought it. Like I never, I've never put together this idea that he was all only in the barn, which, and I, I'm just going, Oh, is that like the way, is that like the way it is? Like, but I've never really, I never noticed that. Yeah. So this was the very first time that, um, I saw like, like Mary Beth. I had never even heard of this Mm -hmm. film when, when, uh, when it was suggested from our PR person, I, I'm so glad that they put in there, not the Nicole Kidman, the others, because that was what I, I first immediately thought. And I was like, wow, that's more of a relatively recent film. But then I was like, oh, the other, I've never even heard of this. And then I started looking up and I'm like, man, this is like, Robert Mulligan is the the director. Jerry Goldsmith does, you know, did the soundtrack right? to it, which Jerry Goldsmith, we have a lot of love for him on this podcast. Yeah. And then Uta Hagen is in it. And yeah. then the cinematographer is Robert uh, Surtees. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Ben Hur, The Graduate. This movie was sandwiched in between The Last Picture Show and The Sting. Like, there's a lot of talent working both in front and behind the camera in this movie. Yeah. And I'm like, how do people not know about this? Because I had no idea that this thing... The book was six months on the New York Times bestseller. No shit, yeah. really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. It's it's wild to me. And then I'm watching this and watching it in 2022 is, is a little bit weird because we've seen the kind of dead twin, you know, plot twist sure. an awful lot with, uh, you know, I'm thinking in particular, uh, tale of two sisters and the American remake, the uninvited and also, mm-hmm. uh, good night, good night, mommy. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yep. yep. And so like watching this now is immediately, Oh, one of them is dead. He, cause like the way that it was edited, but I, but, Thinking back to if I had seen this back in the 70s, this movie would have blown my mind because of how unexpected it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, I don't know what movies were like that back then, um, but it is the first. I mean, I feel like, you know, some of the first twists I remember, like Sixth Sense, which was 20 something years later. But um, that kind of. And that's why I was talking to somebody about I, I've always we almost. I was with Roy Lee. We almost, you know, we pursued like remaking this Fox had the rights to it, like maybe 10 years ago. But that twist is so obvious nowadays, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, really? That's the twist. The the thing is, though, is that like, yes, there's that twist. And I'm happy that it happens, you know, about like around the midpoint of the film. And so it's not all about that twist, because what happens afterwards is where like things just start to spiral. And I was like, oh, now I see why this movie scarred him for life because this movie is fucking with me just from from that moment on. It's just like death after death and trauma after trauma and just 
it, I think it's the way to do a twist in, in this form is that it sort of informs what happened, kind of makes you recalibrate what you saw, but like pushes the plot forward in such a fantastic way. Well, then you yeah. see this massive shift in Niles that you haven't like he is such a cute like I'm just a cute kid who likes my mom and my grandma and we hang out and she taught me how to astral project myself into birds and shit <laughs> and I'm just having a great time and my twin is a psychopath and then all of a sudden you have the twist and then I was like and I t- again texting Terry there's 30 minutes left in this movie what is about to <laughs> fucking happen and then he's just an outright little evil asshole but like in a way that, again, in the 1970s is incredibly surprising. I mean, le- he drowns a whole baby uh, as-, as opposed to half a baby. <laughs> but like That moment. But it was so fun. And, I- and that's a very Mockingbird kind of like the vibe yes. of it. You go and look at the acting and this vibe. The way everyone like Ugh. runs into the house and is like screaming and in anguish. But then it's it's funny because I can tell like me being a person who watches so much horror in this day and age. I, when the sister is pregnant, I'm like, something's happening to the baby. As like either she's getting stabbed in the stomach or something is happening to the baby. I did not expect it to be a drowning of a newborn. That was a little bit more intense than I was expecting. But like, it is so funny how think movies like this existed before we have these tropes, and it's so funny to revisit them and be like, oh wait. It's so it's interesting to see how these things that we're so used to now where they probably came from in a movie that no one talks about. In a movie that I never hear talk about. I know. That's what's weird. Like, maybe they don't talk about it because people stole some some ideas from it and then we're just like, we're going to, this one didn't quite make it. So let's um, pretend it doesn't exist so we can keep moving forward with these great twists. I don't know. It's it's such a disarming film, too. I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, but the way the, the movie opens, it's very kind of quaint, rural. It's sort of like country nostalgia which is sort of this yeah. thing that um i would say uh, robert or yeah robert mulligan did sort of with his other two movies like that came before this that i'm thinking in particular like the summer of 42 and um to kill a mockingbird where it's sort of like it feels almost like a romanticized version of the past looking back through rose colored glasses and so when this yeah. movie starts like that and i was like this is the expectation because i grew up watching to kill a mockingbird in in you know as a kid, I read the book in school. We watched the movie. Like, I'm like, okay, this is giving me that kind of vibe. And then it just slowly, it even kind of presents like a romanticized family. Like, everyone seems to be happy. You don't see the mom. They talk about the mom, but she's like up in her room. And I'm like, what's up with the mom? Why is she away from the family? But there's, you know, his brother and or his sister and his, his sister's husband. She's pregnant. There's people all over the family. Like, it seems like a very happy progressive moving forward type family. And then you start to like slowly pick apart the the layers and realize that no, this family had a double trauma of the father dying and then the the son, one of the twins, falling down the well. And it's you start to pick at that. And it's yeah. like, boy, this this is a really smart way of introducing the film. Yeah. And you know, is that what made um Niles, I guess, so twisted? Are those tragedies that happened to him in the story, you know, or was he yeah. was he evil all the time? Um, well, and I was I was thinking, I, so I was, I was torn between whether this is like a supernatural movie or if it's like a a mental, um, you know, mental illness type of story. Because at one at one point I was like, Ooh, this is sort of like a haunted house story, but the ghost is being kept alive by his brother's memory, who's maybe he's psychic and he's keeping him alive, and so it's sort of like the house is haunted by this 
dead kid. But then I was like, or is it, you know, he's, he's kind of dealing with like schizophrenia and it, it's his grandma was trying to help him try to work through that by having empathy. Cause like I was thinking about the, the moment when he first like astral projects into the bird and she's like, what does it feel like? Do you see it? And sort of like showing him this is a real creature and showing like empathy. And so I was kind of torn between, is this um, supernatural or is it just a kid that lost his father, lost his brother and is just deeply destroyed. I mean, the astral project thing is definitely a bit supernatural, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that to me is part of what's fun is because, you know, the last, the second, the last image of the movie is the lock that's somehow right. like broken in a way that's impossible. So where, you, you know, where you just kind of go, how did he get out of there? And it was it literally, he practically got out or, is there just something you can't explain about the story that um, makes it, I, I, I wonder, and to me, it, it, you know, it probably makes it stick longer mm -hmm. knowing like, oh, it's, you know, not just a bad seed. It's maybe something else. And certainly her setting it up with all of this astral projecting stuff. Right. Introduces like if we're not completely in the real world, you know, yeah. um, but in a grounded way. I don't know. I, I was thinking when I was watching this, there's a lot of, I think one of the things this movie does really well too is uses images of like isolation, but doesn't really call attention to it. I'm thinking in particular, there's the, the baby in the jar at mm. the, uh, at the carnival when they sneak into like the, the freak show and he goes in and they're staring at that baby in the jar, which of course there's a little baby in the jar by the end of this movie. And there's the, the foreshadowing. Yeah. Wait, shit. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just great foreshadowing. I don't yeah. even, you Whoa, know. Whoa, fuck. And then there's the Mexican jumping beans, which, of course, are little bugs that are trapped in the seeds. And so there's, like, again, this idea of something being trapped and unable to escape from their situation. Holland hides in the cellar. And Niles is asking him, what are you doing in the dark? And Niles says, I'm thinking. Or Holland says, I'm thinking. And that's, like, kind of creepy as it is. But uh, the boarded up well becomes a plot point. At the very end, the last shot of the movie is Niles looking out at life behind glass. And it almost gives a lend of, like, you know, kind of in the kind of insane asylum kind of look. Like, he's looking outside the glass of, like, a, a cell. Like, the house has become a cell to him. It's, like, all kind of representative of Niles's mental state of being unable to get past this event and it's such a small little bit of environmental storytelling that i think is so so subtle but good yeah i think that was a big part of like him directing the movie you know mm -hmm. um it was a it was a it was a strange choice for them to have him come on board when and he'd done so many kind of <laughs> tender character pieces in a way that had a side to them and you know i gotta believe that in the hands of a kind of a, a different filmmaker all that stuff could have been a little more hand-fisted than mm -hmm. uh, not nearly as interesting as you're describing it. Yeah. I, and the, the, the horror moments of this are so good. Like I am, I am surprised that like Niles, where is the baby? Isn't like a more of like a tagline that people use in like horror, because it's such a chilling moment when Ada finally realizes what's going on. And, and he's like, She's like, where is that baby? And he says, Holland's got the baby. He's bad. He's never going to go to heaven, which is another like kind of push and pull that this movie has this idea of yeah. heaven and hell. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. Holland is going to hell. You know, Niles thinks he's going to heaven. The angel, like there's so much symbolic kind of storytelling here that I just, I'm like, 
why isn't this movie being talked about more? Yeah, I mean, that crazy dissolve, if you remember it, of the stained glass window of the mm-hmm. angel to her right before she then holds up her wings and falls down and with the fire. It's uh, in those kind of moments of, of him trying to convince her that, like what you said, that that um, Holland is going to hell. and But what's so creepy to me about it is the whole time we're kind of in her point of view going, you know, my, my nephew or nephew, I guess. Right. Um, is, you know, like everything he's saying, he's just digging him deeper into this well of a lie. And he may not even be, you know, cognizant of it, but it's like kind of heartbreaking. Like everything he says just makes it more and more points more and more the finger at the fact that he's the one doing everything. And the fact that, like, it's not going to change. And it won't. uh, No. Based on the way it ends. Well, and the way she also blames herself, too, because she's like, I was Mm. playing into it. Like, I was doing this to make you feel better. Like, I thought that this was helping you heal. And actually, it was just making you evil. And there's a lot going on with her in terms of blaming herself, I think, and and what's happened and in creating a monster. And she wants so badly to think he's not a monster. But then at the end, when she's like, well, I guess you drowned a baby. And then she kind of martyrs herself for that and takes the blame for that. But then, and in my yeah. head, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, another woman killing herself because of, a, of like, a, like, but then he's alive. He like is alive maybe at the end. And I was like, this is so twisted. Like there's no escaping this thing, whatever it is, whatever is happening. I got very like omeny vibes from it a little bit at the end. Oh yeah. And like, well, Jerry Goldsmith's score, not the same one, but like in my head, I'm thinking the omen already, but it's just like, and I think same time period. What did the omen? Oh yeah. Yeah. A couple years. Four. Six, five, four. I can't remember, but it. 76. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they really drew upon it in some ways. They had, they had to for sure, because it's just like this whole thing of, her trying to stop an evil and thinking like, well, if I can stop this and everyone is safe and then realizing that you, no matter what you think you're doing personally to stop something, like you are not bigger than whatever is going on. And while this one, this film exists on maybe a smaller scale than the Omen, obviously in terms of implications, it's, I mean, at least outwardly, it's very interesting how this movie plays with that kind of um, those ideas. Well, it very much plays with the same way that the Omen ends. It's like, no, you can't, you have to kill your kid, you know, mm-hmm. like you have to kill your son at the altar. And if you hesitate, that could be it for you, which is what happens in both movies, sort of. They both kind of fail at that because, um, I mean, she went all in and <laughs> trying to, <laughs> she could have done a better job maybe in, in ending him. But Gregory Peck, it's Gregory Peck? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, hesitated, right? He sure did. Um, Look what it got him. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, and they both had that a similar type ending, you know, you know, which like another film in that era. Yeah. The kid looking at the camera in, in the Omen, the kid looking out the window here, like definite. There's definite. I think there's a lot of movies that pull 
bits and pieces from this movie. Cause I was even thinking when she comes out in the flowing dress and she's starting to self-immolate, it brought me back memories of St. Maud that came out a few years oh, ago. Yeah. And the last shot of that where it's like, yeah. cause there's even the kid, he's looking up at her in like ecstasy because he thinks he's seeing the angel. Right. And it's actually her. And then there's the moment of realization, which is exactly how St. Maud ends. And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about like the omen is obviously like you can see kind of parallels here. It's just, and you know, the bad, um, Bad son, you know, was mm-hmm. something like I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is reminds me a bit, you know. Um, yeah, there's there's so many things, and and yeah, that moment you described of um, Niles looking up at at her when she's coming down, you know, like thinking not that she's coming to save him, but um, but you know, that's his favorite person. I mean, that's mm-hmm. his kind of angel, and then but she's there to stop him uh and i think i think it's interesting because like he even when he when he's telling holland quote unquote about you know the angel and about he's asking holland you know when when you die what do you think you see and holland's like i'm i think i'm gonna be pretty much too concerned about dying to see anything but he's like but holland says how do you know the angel's gonna take you to heaven and and he's like well only bad people go to hell and so then there's that moment and he and it's literally like burning you know brimstone and fire in the in the place and the angel is bringing him <laughs> potentially to death and he somehow you know he escapes at the end but it's like again so much like symmetry and so much symbolism here between the environmental storytelling and and what's really happening with the plot that i just it just wowed me so much well you know you just said that whole idea that um you know, you don't go to hell if you, if you're not a bad person. Um, and him, the look on his face when she comes to kill him, you know, until the bitter end. And of course he survived it. He didn't think he was bad, you know, um, strangely, but he was also, I, I realized that, um, I have not really seen Uta Hagen in a whole lot of film. And it turns out I, I, did a little bit of digging. She was like blacklisted in Hollywood. Oh, really? Uh, as part of like the, they thought she was part of the Communist Party. Oh, for fuck's and sake. so a lot of actors, a lot of people got blacklisted. So she did a lot of TV and a lot of like uh, theater at that point. But her filmography is is very, very small. I think this might have been her first full movie. Jesus. Wow. wow. And it was a big deal. You yeah. Know, she was a, a big deal. Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that she got blacklisted. Poor thing. Yeah. And I was thinking, because I was thinking about how like. I'm sure she wasn't a communist. Right. Uh, I mean, Red Scare, like that whole era, just wild. But I I was thinking about how like Niles is sort of like an outcast in his mind. And I was thinking about how Uta Hagen was sort of outcast from Hollywood. And then I was also thinking about how the the screenwriter, Tom Tryon, he was a closeted actor uh, throughout the, you know, the time in, in, in making movies and had a really terrible experience with the Cardinal where the film's director uh, fired him in front of his parents when they came to the set one day to like humiliate him and then hired him back. And that was like the moment that he quit acting and decided he wanted to be a novelist. And then that's how this movie kind of got, got birth from what I was seeing. And I'm just thinking about how all these people kind of attached to this, the writer, uh, this big actress were all sort of, others in in hollywood yeah i wondered when i when i um saw that you know he had been a a working actor for 20 years or something and to shift to becoming a novelist and this being your first novel it's like that's definitely there was something underneath that you know there was something there 
Yeah. Which is interesting what you said. It's it's a while to me how many people we end up finding out um were were queer at that time and just couldn't because like we we've been going on like a, a binge of old movies on our like little mini so that we do and just seeing all these people who had to be in the closet at that time and were sort of like working because of the Hayes code and all that kind of stuff that was happening it's wild to me to see all of this this talent that you would eventually later on find out oh yeah they were gay or they were queer or they were closeted it's just i don't know it's it's heartbreaking but it's also like yeah, yeah there's a lot of a lot of queer people making stuff that people don't realize were queer. And I, I yeah. think it's weird. Super talented, super creative. And, you know, it, it must have been a terrible existence sort of, you know, for them yeah. to be hiding on that level. Yeah. Mm. Well, do we want to start wrapping up and give this a rating out of five, Terry? That sounds good. Oh. Um, so, Terry... How many desiccated ring fingers cut off of the corpse of your dead twin brother out of time do you give the other? (laughs) That moment, I was like, no. Is this really happening? Is that where the finger came? I was like, no, no. I... The, the the horror moments in this are just after indelible. the kid took it from the dead, you know. I know. I, know. I was like, wait a second, are we just all? And that's why you push mom down the steps. Yes, like, are we all just like cutting off fingers and taking rings? Like, what is <laughs> happening here with this family? Like, I have so many questions about what is going on with this fucking family. Anyway, the idea of lineage, like yes. Niles and, and Holland thinking that you know the ring belongs to them, and the the sort of like keeping that cuz the peregrine falcon is is such a big image in the in the film it's on there's like a wind thing that spins around at the top yeah. and it's the symbol on the ring it's such a i don't know the idea of legacy and it kind of potentially ending with like the ring and in, in the father's crypt and not getting passed on is such a i don't know that's a no whole other angle that i i feel like could be dug into but this movie's great I love this movie so much. I was surprised at how much I loved it, considering that I don't hear people talk about it. Mm. And I, you know, for me, I I do think that uh, this movie is probably four. I'm going to cut one of those desiccated fingers in half, four and a half out of out of five desiccated ring fingers for me. I just I was blown away by blown away by this movie. And I I just I want to talk about it and evangelize it to everyone. What about you, Mary Beth? I think a similar four and a half. I think I was unsure at the at first. I was like, okay, it's just like a kid being a weird kid with his weird brother. <laughs> Terrible me assuming things about I've like I've seen all the horror movies, but it surprised me and I love it <laughs> when I can I mean, these movies surprise me and find a gem like this that needs to be given more love and appreciated. Like I think there's this thought that movies from before a certain time are like not 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 it's not not scary but like transgressive and pushing boundaries and like having i think this movie is transgressive and existing in this time period and also for the lengths it goes to i think i still think i give like horror movies from this era enough credit and i think i'm continuing to be surprised and movies like this are making me realize that like no we've all been fucked up it's not just now like we've always (laughs) been kind of fucked up just a different kind of fucked up it's not a gory fucked up but babies are still getting drowned in wine barrels so like don't you worry so that image (laughs) i know (laughs) it's like good lord but yeah so Brett, you have the final say. How many desiccated ring fingers out of five do you get? Oh, I give it five, <laughs> of course. I mean, it's 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 um, scarred me for life. It's made me. It's it's dictated so much of like everything I do. Um, 
in storytelling. Um, and yeah, and it comes from a time when, you know, you know, we, when one of the New York Times bestseller is that book, like, like what a, what a great time to, to be reading books, you know, yeah. even before they made the film. Yeah. Um, so, and it is, um, it's exciting to me that I just, I mean, virtually nobody ever knows about it. You know, if, if, um, I mention it as something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, so yeah, it's easy for me, obviously to score it like that. The only downside is it's hard to find here in it the States. It's so hard to find. I was, and again, I, I, where did you guys find it? We had to reach out to some friends who had, um, a digital copy of it to, to watch. Cause like I couldn't find it anywhere. Like I mean, I've got Blu-rays, a DVD. Were, Blu-rays and DVDs were like over a hundred dollars to order. <laughs> like it just, it, it's not, it's not readily available here. And I'm, I'm like, why isn't this movie readily available? It should be streaming. It should be giving a criterion release. Like it, it should be getting all of this. Like, uh, yeah. And by the way, you know, the trailer, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys looked at it. It's like crazy tone. <laughs> began to happen that summer. There were secret terrors, secret places. But the most frightening secret of all is yet to come. Shocking bestseller, 20th Century Fox, presents a new concept of terror and madness. There have been all the others. Now there is the other rated PG. The posters, like the monochromatic, like really graphic posters, um, the tagline, I mean, so much, so many things about it are just uh, so Please don't reveal the secret of the other. <laughs> I love when movies do that. Isn't that amazing? I love that. That was the coolest poster. And then said, Holland has the baby. Holland wears the, the baby? baby. I was like, these posters are so good. It was like very yellow. Oh, it's just so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Yellow, black, and white. So cool. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for joining us to talk about this movie. And when someone asks, what is the most fucked up P- PG movie you've ever seen? I can point to this movie because good <laughs> Lord, I know, I know why this movie wasn't rated R and I know PG 13 didn't exist, but this is not a PG yes. movie. Like, no. wow. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> but, uh, where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up that you can talk about and share? The, um, well, you know, you can find me anywhere on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. But, um, just finished a movie called Lord of Misrule, which, um, is kind of a pagan horror film Ooh. about a, um, small village outside of, you know, in, in the UK, um, that follows a, a female vicar, a reverend and, and her husband and, and her daughter. They're new to this small village and the daughter goes missing at a, a pagan festival Ooh. and, and then as she tries to find, you know, who's, who tries to find her daughter, it, it, it becomes very apparent that the pagan festival that these people treat as kind of fun is actually much more ingrained in their history. Oh. Um, and so, you know, it, it was Tuppence Middleton, who's just incredible, mm. act, an incredible actress and, um, um, Ralph Einson from The Witch, 
Oh yeah. Uh, which, which you will see is, I mean, this is the best thing you've seen him in except for the witch. I mean, he's been great and like, he was great in the green night things, like, but it's like this movie, he's the character he plays in this movie was written for a 60 year old woman. And, and I was in London and I wanted him to be in the movie and, uh, but there wasn't a great part for him. And he, um, was going to play, do, do a cameo. And then I kind of had the idea of like, what if you play Jocelyn, this woman who's wow. the kind of the villain of the whole movie. Um, and, and then we worked it out and he did. And it was just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I'm literally like locking picture. Oh, on his Hell voice, yeah. scared, like his voice alone is just like something. We did a trailer, you know, and it's, you don't need a trailer guy's voice because you have the character talking yes. and he sounds, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's pretty epic. Oh, hell, yeah. hell yeah. Oh, I'm very excited for that. But it's, it's, it's great. I'm excited. And yeah, that's in that, in that, and, and, um, I have a series at Sony with Chris Morgan called, um, which is based on Peter Straub's book, Floating Dragon. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's floating dragon, um, but uh, which is an epic, which is which is the book that's inspired so much of like things like Stranger Things and stuff. Fuck yeah. um, it's you know it's it's an epic six hundred page horror novel that could be a thousand pages. Cool. Anyway, awesome. That's cool. That those are the things I'm working on right now. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. Have you seen the other? We would love to hear about it. And if you watch the other because of this podcast, also let us know because everyone should be <laughs> watching this movie. You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gaily Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>